I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Economists generally see economic growth measured through GDP as a result of how much we spend, how much businesses are investing, how much government is spending, and the net level of exports. Put all that together and supposedly you've got the future GDP outlook, but it's hard to predict, isn't it? And more importantly, how do you improve your situation? I mean, you can't export more if you don't produce stuff that other countries want to buy. So isn't the real potential for growth tied up in what you make and what you have that's needed to make what you make? Isn't it all a bit more complex than the top-line figures that economists look at? And even if they get it right... Isn't it simply reporting on things the way they are, rather than looking at the potential to make growth better? That's what we look at today on the Debunking Economics podcast with Professor Steve Keen. I'm Phil Dobby. Yes, what we're talking about today is the idea of economic complexity, that the success of an economy depends on the complexity of the set of products it produces and exports. The greater the range of products a country exports and the more diversified it is, the greater the potential for economic growth. That's that's about it, isn't it, Steve? That's pretty much it. I mean, with the interesting um, insight out of the Atlas of Economic Complexity, which I highly recommend people to take. It's great fun to look around. Oh, it's brilliant, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and I have too. Uh, is, is it's, it says we can analyse what's actually happened in international trade. Okay, we're not talking about theory here. We're saying what has actually happened. And they have a database called the standard SITC, the Standard International Trade, Trade Classification Database, which classifies products down to, I think, an eight-digit level and then aggregates those into different uh, higher, higher um, entity aggregations. And without fail, the countries that advance most rapidly are the ones with the most complex industrial patterns. And the mm-hmm. example that um, Cesar Hidalgo gives, one of the two major brains behind the whole project uh, is um, that if you have uh, something like, a, actually this is my favourite example, but I'll, I'll, I'll use it to try to remember Caesars as I go. If you have a country, company, a country where somebody produces surfboards and where somebody produces sails, you may consider putting the two together and producing sailboarding, yeah. uh, which is the whole new industry. So it's, it's a case that the, it, to actually build a new industry, it helps to already have uh, another related industry that not particularly far away in terms of both physical distance and also in a sense an intellectual distance. They've done a, a wonderful job of taking the data and saying, uh, for example, glass is an essential part of making a car because you have to be able to see out of it. So glass and cars are close together, whereas uh, leather uh, is slightly further away because, yes, you use leather for leather seats, but a lot of cars have vinyl, um, so you don't necessarily need leather where you do necessarily need glass. So and then with that combination, you can produce a, a, a pattern of an overall economy's interrelation of industries. Right. So long as you've got the infrastructure in that country to enable those industries to become 
intertwined. So this becomes a good argument, doesn't it? In fact, I was on the radio the other day talking about HS2, and I was trying to make this point that it, you've got to look at infrastructure within a country so that uh, it's not, not a case of just building up the north at the expense of the south. It's giving those companies in the north the ability to be able to communicate and work with companies in the south. And you can't expect the north to develop as a sort of an isolated country on its own. You're always going to be working with the, what is the, you know, at the moment, the powerhouse in, in England, which is in, in the southeast of England. So you need infrastructure links that are going to enable that to happen. So this yeah. complexity will only happen if you've got the infrastructure to support it. Yeah, and I just remember what I was going to do with Sir Dan Hagel, example. He said, if you think about the theory of comparative advantage, that implies that the uh, the countries which are high up the production scale are going to be producing highly complex devices, such as like uh, nuclear power stations and uh, and jets and so on. And countries lower down will specialise in less technological than, say, for example, nails. Now, when you look at Germany, Germany produces both nuclear power stations and re- engines and nails. In other words, it isn't the case that countries specialise mm-hmm at a high end versus a low end. Uh, it's, the, the best countries are the ones that do everything. And Germany is one of the, the top examples. And uh, the, another thing which normally I, you and I look at it in terms of the, uh, you know, which, what, what products are exported by which country to which other countries, which is this rectangular grid where they break it into the different classifications. But I think the most interesting thing is the overall um, network effect they've, they've, they've created of all industries for all countries. Have you seen, have you looked at that side of it yet? Yeah, I have. Yeah, yeah. And okay, is that, okay. uh, yeah, which is a very complicated map. Um, it is, yeah. But what, what, what do you use it? What you do is you click on one particular point. So, for example, the UK, I'm um, just clicking on one of the points right now, produces paints and varnishes aqueous. And these, the, the, it doesn't have to produce it, it exports them. And this is one point of a, a bit of a, potential criticism of the actual way that they decide the level of complexity. We'll come back to that later. Mm. But you look at it and you point at it, it then sends out lines linking to other circles, which are essential parts of that industry and saying, do you produce that as well? And by the looks of it, the UK does not export glues and adhesives, which is a related industry to producing paints and varnishes. Yeah. And, and, but it doesn't, so therefore to be importing, um, Unless it produces it all domestically. But, I mean, if it produces that's, it domestically. That's the point. Yeah. That's the point. I know, this is one thing I've been thinking about as well, looking at all of this, is what mm. about if you've got a very complex model but you don't export a great deal because you've got a big domestic market? Yeah, and this is the other possibility. I'm, I'm, if I, you can, this, this is showing what it – I'm showing what it exported in 2017, looking at this, uh, this amazing cobweb map of the – of the country, but I, I can't see a way to see imports the same way. Yeah. Now, of course, you could show imports the same way. Now, if you have product, like for example, again, that example I've given of glues there, uh, if, if, you, if glues are essential product and you're not exporting them and you're not importing them, then you must be making them domestically and not exporting them. Mm. So to some extent, this map may be misleading. Uh, and it's not how the map itself, the map, the map is going to be quite realistic because it shows if you're going to produce something uh, you've got to have the other inputs from somewhere. But it's whether how they then interpret that to say just how complex your overall economy is. I'm, I'm sceptical about uh, whether they could improve the, the way they analyse it by not just looking at what you export and the complexity of that, but looking at what you export, what you import, where the gaps are, therefore assume you produce it domestically and then look at the complexity of that combined measure. I grew up in the northeast of England. Most of the glue was sniffed 
there. <laughs> He's, um, the, yeah, so the, I don't know whether it was produced well, domestically that, 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 or that's not. Probably well, that probably is an essential part of producing comedy at a later stage. Yeah, maybe, exactly. I, no, I wasn't partaking. I, I oh, there you go. Okay. Uh, but you, the, you, you uh, didn't inhale, okay. I, I didn't inhale. No, that's right. Yeah. It just stuck my nostrils together. So this is mm. – um, it's being used as a fairly accurate predictor, though, isn't it, of, of GDP growth, you know. To, yeah, very accurate. This is, they, they then access the data, so they'll make predictions about future GDP growth given the current pattern that your economy has and where you could be developing and what is appearing to happen in the data as well. Just based on this data itself? Because I would have thought things like, you know, the population growth, the level of education, uh, you know, that that, they'd all be factors. But I guess that sort of is interpreted in the data anyway, because if you... Yeah, yeah. So the data is actually a very useful guide to say, uh, how sophisticated is your particular economy? Um, What can it... um, uh, what can it produce? What would be a good direction for to move its production in? And so they ultimately produce an overall rating is what they call the ECI, Economic Complexity Indicator Value. Yeah. And I'm presuming you know that uh, the, the top the top country here, uh, the top country is Japan. The second is Switzerland. Yeah, China. Uh, so yeah, the ECI score for Japan is two point two eight, but. It's got. Uh, I mean, if we look at that and say, well, this is related to GDP. I mean, Japan's got you know pretty like a GDP growth of just one point three percent at the moment. If you look at China, but that's actually that's you've got a, you've got a factor per capita growth here because of course Japan's mm. population is actually falling. Yeah, I guess so. China's got a low ECI score, and I guess that's because they, I mean, they do have a complexity of products, but maybe not as, not as you know, they, they dominate in certain areas, but they haven't got the enough diversity, I guess. Is that what's holding them back? I mean, well, they've got an ECI score that's less than France, for example. Well, it's, it turns out that, oh, yeah, but um, it's, it's, it's come up a long way. You're looking at the 2017 data where they, in that case, China ranks at number 19. If we go back to 1995 and I'll search for China here, then we find China, uh, is 51 in 1990 with a value of 0.3. No. So yeah. it's Changing. risen dr- dramatically over time. And this is the point of the, the CI ranking. It can measure to say, we predicted you would, given what you currently had as an industry pattern and given the linkages between and therefore the possibility for establishing new industries based on your current existing ones, we predict this rate of growth. And they were coming out all the way saying China's going to rise and China certainly has to the stage where it's now in the top 20. Uh, which in terms of seeing developing countries overall, um, okay, we have, um, hung, well, probably China is the very first country you'd call a developing country uh, in that listing. Right. Uh, the next is Mexico. So, uh, like, but Denmark rates below uh, Poland and Mexico. So, but if it's a predictor, though, you know, if it's yeah. wouldn't China's ECI, its complexity score, be somewhat higher in that they're, you know, if it's a predictor of GDP, then we, you know, the the gro- GDP growth rate in China obviously is much greater than it is in Japan and will be for some time, and yet their ECI score is so much lower, even though it, the ECI score is increasing. Yeah, I mean, again, I I, I guess it's a snapshot, though. So you look at the trend. It's a snapshot, yeah, Yeah. and you've got a trend as well. I put the two together. Yeah. And they do do give fairly accurate forecasts about GDP growth. 
coming out of this. So the point is a sophisticated economy has a complex network of industries making it. Yeah. Uh, it is not the case that specialization is the best idea by far. In fact, the specialized countries, and of course, Canada and Australia are classic instances there, specializing in raw material extraction and house price bubbles. Pardon me. Sorry. I forgot. That's not actually an industry classification. No, no. It should be. Some (laughs) countries need to have it there. Um, I'm sure Professor Demography would agree with me. Um, But those countries are way, way down the listing. And that's the the classic thing with looking at the opposite direction. How's Australia gone? It's been going backwards uh, indefinitely. It's now uh, ranking. um, 0.32, isn't it? The complexity score. uh, I think it's on a, actually, on a par with Zimbabwe and Jamaica in terms uh, of its economic Well, actually, stuff. funnily enough, I've got to check this rating yet again because you've got it wrong. You haven't checked right. Australia's score, have you? I'm, you know what it is? I, th- I thought it was 0.32. I must be looking at the wrong thing. Why, I'm looking, maybe you? looking at country complexity rankings in 2017. Yeah, yeah. Australia gets a rating of minus 0.6. All oh, right. Okay. It's, so it's becoming less complex. It's actually that- stupid. Yeah. I, I, I mean, that's a simple rate. The zero, the zero rating, and this is must be the change. And yet, it's got a high value product to a country that is growing, that wants that product. Therefore, GDP growth has been quite strong, even though it's not got that economic complexity. It's still getting growth. I guess it means, I mean, it's susceptible, obviously, because if that country, let's call it China, for example, decides that they don't want to buy, I don't know what product, let's call it steel. Uh, if they don't want to buy that anymore or iron ore, then um, uh, then you, you've got a problem. But so long as they do, then your GDP growth is looking okay. But um, mm. so, so it's all part of the network, I guess, isn't it? So so long as China's doing all right, we know Australia's going to do okay. And China has got a, a growing economic complexity score. So so can you be less complex and still survive, I guess? Not in the yeah, long term, but in the short term. You can. The obvious example of that are oil extraction yeah. economies, which have highly sophisticated um, mining of the oil, but uh, probably imported all the technology from overseas and the workers are overseas. So they can rate very low in terms of complexity, but still have very high income. So Saudi Arabia and countries like that are a classic example. But as as a guide to how you should develop an economy and how you should think about an economy, I think this is an unparalleled resource. So it really should be used for public sector planning, shouldn't it, really? Well, to to illuminate public sector thinking, because uh, the whole comparative advantage argument, the whole focus on on trade and specialisation, which is the obsession that almost all... Uh, governments have around the world, it's a furphy compared to the importance of having a complex industry network. And you look at this and say, what don't we currently have? Mm. Uh, the answer is we need industry in this position to get a, a, a greater level of complexity. Um, that gives you not just not just growth, it also gives you um, um, uh, what the, the classic word that Nassim Taleb uses. You have not, not durability, but um, oh, my mind's going badly this morning. It's efficiency versus robustness. You've got a robust industry sector. Yeah. Uh, you can produce most of what you need domestically. Uh, you're improving your overall capacity to do things by expanding that robustness, and you're less susceptible to being knocked out by a single thing like a fall on the, a fall in the price of oil or, the, or a fall in the price of coal, which is the limitation that applies to you know, resources. So uh, any, any governments, are you aware of any governments where this, this this concept has been embraced, where they're you know, saying, well, okay, let's start looking at the, the, the complexity as a tool, not just to predict GDP, but also 
for public policy so that we I can- think it's I think it's got a fair bit of um, tra- coverage in uh, the developing countries now it's not it's not yet to the stage where people are using it in a, in a preference to thinking in terms of economic theory mm. but they are looking at it as and saying, okay, this is a practical guide to what industries we need if we're going to talk about putting another industry in. And for example, you can say, well, you've got, you can rule out some ideas about a new industry because we simply haven't got the linkages that are necessary to support it. We try to establish it while bringing in more imports, not less. But it would be a great example, wouldn't it, of how, for example, if a government is determining whether they should uh, prop up an industry, for example, uh, you know, how important is that industry as a constituent part for the, you know, for the for the broader economy? Is it? Just, yeah. And what we tend to look at is just, oh, well, it means one thousand people are going to lose their jobs. But is it one thousand people are going to lose their jobs? But also, these other industries are going to be decimated as a result because this was a key supplier for those industries. Yeah, and that's and that's the uh, essential point. You take out a key supplier in the interest of competition, and the rest of the network of production falls apart as a, as a result of it. So they have a range of publications that I'll have to spend more time reading when I finally get with this strange thing called time allocated to me. Uh, but it includes things things like they would call a growth lab, and they do growth. Or they've got growth diagnostics, working out uh, how can your country grow more effectively. So I'm sure there's a large amount of consulting spinning off this, mm. which would be now turning up in developing economies. Far more useful than inviting the World Bank or the IMF over to tell you how to run your economy. <laughs> Through uh, yeah, that's right. By uh, spending less money and uh, getting people to pay less tax. The mm. um. What about, I guess the other thing you can use it for as well is is to look at how, because it is all about networks, isn't it, and the strength of those networks. And then the, the risk factor is, are any of those networks going to start to decompose? So, for example, if you're reliant on exports of a product from a particular country and that country stops making that product, but you need that product to make your product, we call it product B, uh, which another country needs to make product C and so on. You can see, you know, you can see how the, uh, you know, the deck of cards could fall and and what that could mean for your economy as a result, which could be yeah. a result of a decision made by, you know, a completely different country that's just saying, well, we're not going to make this anymore. Yeah. Or for example, if you find that you have um, a sudden inability to to uh, to use coal, uh, which I think is going to come our way at some point in the future, mm. uh, very very near future, uh, then the Suddenly, you say, what the hell can we replace that with? We look at the linkages and it's used virtually everywhere. So the issue of um, being able to restrict it, you you know, saying, well, we can use it for manufacturing purposes, but you can't use it for energy purposes. Uh, uh, but, of course, we all use energy. So you then get the thing, well, what's that going to do our, to our capacity to... Um, to, to produce in the first instance, you start to get a very, very complicated world coming out of that. But it's a much more realistic picture than than we get from, um, you know, simple comparative advantage thinking. So I think this is one of the examples where computer technology and knowledge about that has taken us drastically ahead of the, the, the conventional thinking. And I would just love to see this being used and taught in universities rather than bloody comparative advantage. Yeah, because this is the opposite of comparative advantage, isn't it? It's almost, yeah. pro- it's almost proving comparative advantage is, uh, is wrong. Yeah, and that, that's what the that's the empirical judgment of this of this uh, research that the countries that grow most rapidly are the ones with the most complex overall the most complex industrial structures, mm. not the most specialized. So specialization is this myth about using existing resources more efficiently. Uh, complexity comes from investing uh, over time, and 
with that investment over time, you can get a, a, a lead in other countries and maintain that lead indefinitely. Uh, and that's what I think Japan has been doing with its export surpluses. Germany the same for a long time, though it's starting to lose its, its um, um, what do you call that, uh, lose, it, lose its magic these days. China has been doing it as well. So the whole pressure to get a diversified industrial structure is the exact opposite of what a conventional economic theory teaches you. So I love the fact, uh, for no really apparent reason, I'm just going to throw this fact in, 44% of all bicycles exported in the world are from China, I guess, because they're used to making bicycles because they ride so many of themselves. And then, ironically, where else do you think would be big on exporting bikes? The Netherlands, because as you know, <laughs> you can't step out the door at your house without getting run over by one. Uh, I've managed a couple of times. 10% of the market they have, the export market. So between the two, 54% uh, from China and uh, the Netherlands. But who's to say that, you know, someone else isn't going to grab that market share and hurt China's export market and, you know, in a little way, affect their GDP. And if you look well, at every, fact, the, every other sector in the, the same way, then that prediction model becomes a little bit more difficult, doesn't it? Well, p pardon me being an Elon Musk fanboy yet again, but oh, I was actually watching a, <laughs> <laughs> watching a presentation by Musk explaining uh, the, the launch of the, of the X uh, model of these uh, lineup just a while ago. And he made the point, he said, designing a car is pretty straightforward. Making it is bloody hard. And he said it's about a, or two orders of magnitude harder to make the machine that makes the, the product than to, to design the product in the first instance. So in that case, this is again why bicycles and the Netherlands and China go so well together. You have you know, a, a century of experience yeah. in producing those for domestic use. And that means you've got all the various manufacturing things nailed down pat where anybody else tries to take over from you unless you're stupid enough to share the, um, the, the knowledge you've got about the manufacturing process, they're going to stuff up and have a long time catching up. And while they're catching up, you get further ahead. So it's, it's a dynamic vision of how an industry economy can compete and grow over time. And dynamism trump statics every day of the week. So isn't this also a, a good reason for Britain stand and know you hate it when I keep on bringing this up because we don't exactly see eye to eye but isn't this a good reason for Britain to stay in the EU because there's your own country's you know economic complexity but if you've broken down the borders and you've got free transport of uh, of capital and people and goods then in, in effect you you've got a region which is acting the same as a country so you can look at that economic complexity and you would you know potentially all benefit from that certainly yeah I and mean, that was a major argument in favor of the european union and if it stated that level as is a, is a, is a creating a, a, a form of united states of europe without the, the common currency and without the central administration it would have been effective it was the overreach that i'm complaining about with the european union and that overreach issue still stands um but, but there'd be any reason for other other areas of the world to say well okay we need to do the same thing. There's a, it's, a, it's a reason to form trading blocks, isn't it? So you get that economic complexity shared amongst you. Yeah, but there's a question of how, how much of a scale you need to get that done. And like the, one of the great advantages of America is that it's a, you know, with a couple of mountain ranges apart, it's easy to cover across an you know, area even of several million square miles um, with, a, with a common, uh, common economies of economies of scale that means you could expand across the entire space. Mm. Easy transportation with the river system initially, then the roads and so on, and the rail to some extent. That is uh, 
Those are the physical advantages of a large block. Now, do you need to extend it beyond the size of the United States of America? I don't think so. I doubt yeah. it. But, and that's so, about- but countries in Africa, if they could stop fighting each other, uh, I know that's a huge generalization, but it's obviously one big problem why we're not seeing uh, growth in that part of the world. If, if there was a peace in Africa and uh, countries could get on and form trading blocks, then that would help them to do, see their GDP growth that, grow that much faster than a series of individual countries all trying to develop this economic complexity themselves. Yeah. And uh, like on that, just looking at the growth projections that they've done from different economies, um, this is quite intriguing. I, I have a hard time accepting the growth figures that come out of China, but looking at the, um, the, this particular uh, analysis. If you go to the growth projections page of the Atlas, it's predicting growth for China of 6.09%, uh, with only three countries ahead of it, Myanmar, uh, Egypt, and Uganda, which not countries actually expect. Um, but they're, they're talking in terms of the potential for exploiting those linkages. Those are the countries that are going to grow the most rapidly. But look down the other end. Uh, well, not amazing. Libya takes up last place. I'll look for in Venezuela, second last place. Let's just look for a significant country that you would not necessarily expect down that end. Um, so far, everything I'm looking at makes plenty of sense to be down the bottom end. I forgot to uh, Cuba at 1.6% and Italy at 1.88. Now, Italy shouldn't be there. No. This is one of those cases where obviously policy has played a major role in it getting in that appalling position. But as I go sideways, ah, there we are, Australia, 2.17. That um, That's a prediction for the rate of economic growth of Australia, which is pretty much the rate of population growth, if not lower. Yeah. So, um, And 6% uh, and for 6% for China is pretty much what China, 6.1% is, is actually is saying they're getting. Yeah. yeah. So uh, that mm. gives me a reason to look at this and say, okay, well, maybe the Chinese numbers aren't quite as artificial as I'm right. sometimes afraid they are. So what does this tell us about economics generally, though? The idea that, that basically we need a more complex approach, that we need a you know sophistication and detail is better than general theory. Well, we need a better general theory. <laughs> That's probably the True. answer. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the general theory is nonsense. The the whole neoclassical approach is just a it's a fantasy, a textbook fantasy applied to the real world. We we, we need a more data driven approach, and this is part of what the Atlas of Economic Complexity applies. We also need to understand complexity itself, and partly what we're looking with complexity here is actually the, a better word might be complicated, uh, because yeah. it's a, you've got a very complicated industrial structure in. Germany, for example, you've got a very simple one in the Sudan and, and for that matter, Australia. Um, so comp- that is one way of looking at what complexity is. The other is complexity means simple system with complex behavior. Well, that's the area that I work at. And you can get most of the characteristics of a capitalist economy out of a very simple model derived from its basic, basic macroeconomic definitions because you're looking in at the, the, the nonlinearity, the interrelations between one one system state and another. So complexity has two meanings. One is a way of thinking about the way the world operates, which is complex systems. The other is the complicatedness of the industrial structure, and it appears the more complicated, the better. But your simple models overlaid on top of this with a with a timeline analysis should give you a, a pretty strong predictive capability, shouldn't it? The combination of the two. Yeah, I think so. I mean, that's what some of my students, ex-students are doing now that I've ceased supervising PhDs, but several of ex-students of mine are working on on national models using Minsky uh, and 
and I, I, plugging in this sort of data. So yeah, we, well, that's we're building, we're extending Minsky so it can handle this sort of data. But it, but the the failing, and I think we touched on it, is that it it's just exports. So the large yeah. large economies like the United States and China obviously have a substantial domestic market, and they will be producing stuff for that domestic market. Yeah, and this is quite possible. They might be falling through the cracks of the way they actually estimate their complexity levels. So I'm, I'll have to, again, getting time is always the problem with me, but I would like to see just how do they make this overall complexity ranking and are they including any analysis of the import and export pattern or just the exports alone? If they're doing just the exports alone, then it could be slightly misleading uh, because, again, of that situation of a country which ex- produces what it needs for its own market but doesn't have an export foothold. Uh, so the industry could be more complex than that rating base just on the export side can be. Again, I'm, not, I'm talking through my hat here in one sense. I haven't had a look at the, in detail how they calculate that index, so it may take some kind of imports, but I do believe it's based just on the export side. And you would be able to see, wouldn't you, which which are growth industries and which industries are in decline because, it, as, as I was saying before, you get that sort of like decay of networks, which you'd see happening as a as an industry goes into decline and you start to see that, that supply chain start to fall apart. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and, I mean, some, and similarly the other way, growth industries yeah. where there's greater demand for uh, precious metals for building mobile phones, for example, that sort of thing. Yeah, and if you, I'm, I'm trying to find uh, the one, one one intriguing problem about the um, the databases that you have this um, the, the the goods and services view, which I've, you and I've been discussing a moment ago, and it's obvious insurance and finance is 12.72 percent of that. But if you go for the visualization in terms of product space, I don't know which dot it is, and <laughs> it's got to be one of those dots which is which is filled in the UK case, um, uh, but. None of those dots compare, for example, to the size of the dot of the petroleum dot, and the scale of the dots actually reflects measure, measuring, um, as they've done every country on the planet, how significant that industry is 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 a component of the overall industry space. And for example, cars is the biggest in the cluster. The centre of the cluster is the biggest one by far is cars, because exactly the same map is applied for every country on the planet. Um, so one of these dots here would be the dot for the size of the finance sector. And there's no way it's 12% of the overall area. So there's a way in which uh, you could even looking at these two together. Once I, I wish I could find finances, I'm rolling my indicator over over the, the various filled dots for the UK. Uh, unused stamps even turns up as one of the bloody classifications. God knows why that's their precious stones, jewellery of precious metal. No, I'm not going to find it. Um, but There's a lot of people into philately. Which, which is stamps. I, I believe stamps. that. I'm, just I'm just just a terrible <laughs> pun. Uh, just want to make sure you're licking but, the right but thing. But yes, um, the, 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 I think, in other words, this is a database which we're only scraping the surface of mm. being able to use to understand the production system and its evolution over time. And that is what economics should be about. And in that sense, I think this is the most one of the most useful resources in, in economics ever. Right. And it's great fun. And oh, yeah. I think even even if you can't draw any conclusions from it, it's fascinating to see. You, for example, I wouldn't have known that. Uh, you know, it's not totally surprising, except for the percentage that forty four percent of all bicycles exported in the world are from China. But of course, they would be, wouldn't they? Because yeah, and also other things to take a look at include the um, the the feasibility chart. So they do a graph and say, what is the feasible industry for you to be able to develop in terms of its distance from other industries. Um, and uh, 
So, you know, it's another way of saying, well, these are the ones that are feasible. Let's move industrial development in that direction. So it's, 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 it's a data-driven way to choose. The old saying, you can't pick winners, uh, you know, gets in the way of doing any government planning. But this says we can look at the data and tell you these are the ones that are most feasible given your current industrial structure. Well, governments should be looking at that when they're building infrastructure because they should be trying to build the infrastructure that's going to support the, country, the, 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 the industries which are most feasible to develop in your country to show the most yeah. growth. I mean, there's a lot of uh, uh, public sector uh, provision that could be built around this, couldn't there? Yeah, absolutely. I think it should be guiding. Uh, I'd, I'd rather see government learning from this than learning from economic textbooks. <laughs> well, we can live in hope. Good to talk, Steve. Catch you again very soon. Thank you. Okay. Thank you, Matt. And we'll be back again next time, next week, with another Debunking Economics podcast with Professor Steve Keane. I'm Phil Dobby. See you then. Thanks for listening. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. If you've enjoyed listening to Debunking Economics, uh, even if you haven't, you might also enjoy The Y Curve. Each week, Roger Hearing and I talk to a guest about a topic that is very much in the news that week. It's lively, it's fun, it's informative. What more could you want? So search The Y Curve in your favourite podcast app or go to ycurve.com to listen.